The following message was given by Nick Kidwell, the senior pastor of Valley Creek Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.valleycreek.church. And for those who were with us last week, you know we began our walkthrough of the scriptures and the promises of the coming Messiah. And so this is week two of our Advent series, and we're doing this high-level walkthrough of the promises and the expectations of the coming of Christ. Last week, we considered together from Genesis 3 God's good design for His creation. It's corruption into sin and the promise that one day God would send a descendant of Eve who would crush the evil that had been unleashed on the world through sin. This week, we're now fast-forwarding a great many years to the time of God's first chosen earthly king for Israel, King David. As I prepared this week, I was reminded of a scene from the first Avengers movie. If you guys are familiar with the Avengers movies at all, in it, Loki, he's the little G-god of mischief, he's come to Earth and he's decided that he wants to dominate, he wants to control, and he wants to make Earth subservient to him. And so he stands in front of this crowd of people and he, he begins forcing them to the ground and he says, kneel before me. Is this not simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. Following this speech, an elderly German Jewish gentleman stands up and he says, not to men like you. Loki says, there are no men like me. And the old man says, there are always men like you. We spoke last week about the purpose of God creating us. We talked about our design to live for God's glory and to his praise and under his rule. We were created to worship. Though he's twisting the truth terribly to his own advantage, Loki in his speech isn't wrong. As humans, we will follow someone. We were made to worship and we were made to follow. This is a good thing. It's a glorious thing because we were made to live for God, the greatest thing in existence. The old Jewish man doesn't refute Loki. He doesn't say that humanity wasn't made to kneel, but he does say not to men like you. Given the man's heritage, this was surely a nod to the tyrannical reign of Hitler, one of the most wicked rulers that this world has ever seen. Such abuses can lead us to believe that all authority is evil. In our pride, we reject the very notion of a king, the very notion of kneeling in reverence, but the notion itself is not wrong. In fact, bowing a knee before the proper thing, recognizing that we are not the rulers of the universe, but in fact need the protection, empowering, and care of the one who is is the only way we will be truly happy. Yet so often we bend a knee to the wrong things. The issue is one that we see play out over and over again in the pages of Scripture, especially for God's people. Last week, we ended at Adam and Eve, where a great promise was made. A descendant of Eve would one day crush evil. The next major development is a promise that came with God calling a man named Abraham. God, 
begins to hand down the promise that he would one day again dwell with his people, a people of his choosing. Where Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence, God makes a promise to bring people back to him. He promises Abraham that he'd give him a good land. You can think of the garden. He promises Abraham that he'll make of him a great nation. You think of God's people. He promises him that he'll bless him and make his name great. You can think of the image bearers of God being fruitful and multiplying God's name on the earth. And he promises that who blessed Abraham would be blessed by God and those who curse Abraham would be cursed by God. Through Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. There was going to be, through Abraham's line, a global blessing available, a return to a good land prepared by God and a great people of God established for his glory. But Abraham doesn't see this come to fruition. Abraham's family eventually becomes slaves in Egypt. Yet God continues to grow them, keeping his promise, and then he brings them out of their slavery, and he gives them the land of Canaan to live in, and he establishes them as a nation. It would seem at that point that the promise is being fulfilled. If they were going to be in his presence, though, they needed to walk in his ways. So God gave them this land. He commanded them to walk in his ways and his statutes, to purge all evil from that land, and not to intermix with the godless practices of those who were there, to honor him, to live at peace with one another. Unfortunately, as we know, Israel, like Adam and Eve, failed to do this. The promise was not yet realized. They often looked no different from the wicked nations they were meant to drive out. And though the people should have seen God himself as their king, Lord over them, they were discontent. And they clamored for an earthly ruler. Their wanting a king wasn't a godly desire to maintain order or experience God's shepherding care over them through a human representative. The people clamored for a king because they wanted something other than God's rule. They wanted to kneel, but they wanted to kneel to the wrong person. God gave them their desire, and he appointed over them a man named Saul. And though God would use Saul to accomplish good for his people, Saul was a concession to Israel's sinful request rather than the king God would ultimately appoint for his people. And so in the midst of Saul's reign, as Saul sins and devolves into paranoid, ungodly madness, God chooses for himself a king to reign over his people. He chooses a man after his own heart. He chooses an earthly king who would serve as a representative of God, not as a substitute for God. And that's where we're picking up now in our reading. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. David now has been king for some time. God has worked through him. And David, rightly considering the glory of God, is troubled that he lives in a palace 
Yet God's representative dwelling to the people is still a tabernacle, a portable tent that had been used ever since the time of wandering in the wilderness. In David's mind, this was a slap in God's face. And so what we're reading then is God's response to David's idea of building a temple for God. And in the midst of this response, we get the next big step in God's promise of redemption. We see the promise yet again of a descendant, of an offspring. Eve's offspring would crush evil. Abraham's offspring would be a blessing to the earth. And now in David's offspring, we see the reverse of the curse would involve a godly king. And so the next chapter in this unfolding Advent story is the promise and the king. So let me pray for us before we read. And we'll be reading verses 4 through 17 is what I told the slides. I did this last week to you too. We're just going to start at the beginning of 7. We'll be reading 1 through 17. But let me pray before we read. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that you have maintained your promises. Lord, I pray as we read this morning our hearts would be stirred in affection for Christ Jesus. Lord, he is the one who you promised. Help us to see that, to feel our need for Christ, and to glorify him as we consider who he is. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to start in verse 1, but the screen will pick up on verse 4. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David... Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Like last week, we won't be diving into everything that we could in this passage, but rather we're going to be focusing on how this passage points toward the coming Messiah. And so before we look at the profile of the Messianic King that's given here, I want to quickly speak to some of the more immediate fulfillment that would come from this prophecy. Often when we read prophecy in the Old Testament, we see multiple things being spoken of all at once. I've heard John Piper describe prophecy like a mountain range. If you're standing in front of a string of mountains, they all look like one unbroken chain. But you look down from above or you ascend the summit of one of them and you realize some of the peaks are separated by a massive gulf in between. That's true of biblical prophecy. There are often present and future events being pictured all in one passage. For instance, last week, Adam and Eve, they understood there was a curse being placed on the serpent. They understood a promise of coming relief from evil. But they wouldn't have known at that point the way Satan was also being addressed here and the long time between the promise and its fulfillment. Likewise, in our passage this morning, we see a few mountain ranges all at once. There was a very immediate application of this prophecy, which we'll take a minute to consider, but then, though hinted at here, over time it became clear that there was a much bigger prophecy that was being spoken of and would be fulfilled. There was a king who was coming who would surpass all kings who had ever come before. And so in the immediate, what we see here is a promise to David for the sake of Israel. A promise to him that unlike Saul, that wicked king who had been cast out, whose line was cut off from the throne, God would not do the same to the house of David. There was an immediate promise that David's line was secure on the throne, And not only now, but forever. Verse 13 says that God was making a promise that for as long as a king reigned in Israel, the rightful king to reign was to be of the line of David. And this promise was made for the good of Israel. David was a man after God's own heart. And the implication being that the line of kings to follow ought ought to be from that godly heritage, leading the people in peace and walking in step with God. There's a promise here as well that David's heir would build God a house. We see that in verse 13 again. There's a bit of wordplay here, but the immediate application of this promise was that the temple David wanted to build would be built by his successor to the throne, his son Solomon. There's also a nod in this promise that David's son, Solomon, would fall into iniquity. 
Verse 14, but again, unlike Saul, whose house was removed from the throne, God's steadfast love would remain ever set on David and his household, and God would discipline the king like a son, but not cast him away. And all of this was an unconditional promise. Like the promise made to Abraham, this was a covenant that God was making. Nothing David or his successors could do would change God's purpose. What he was saying to David was sure. And so, in the years following David, we see many of these promises come to pass. There is a period of peace in Israel under the household of David and his son Solomon, who would exceed him. In fact, if David's reign was the high point of the kings, King David is the standard for the kings of Israel, Solomon's was the high point for the nation. Under Solomon, Israel was at peace with those around them. They were immensely prosperous. Their fame traveled far beyond their borders, bringing praise to God. Solomon did, in fact, build a glorious temple to God, and God's presence rested gloriously with his people. However, as the prophecy foresaw, iniquity did come. Solomon gave himself over to sin. His heart was led astray by his many godless wives, and idolatry grew in Israel. Because of this, the people of Israel saw division. God did keep David's line on the throne, but only over two of the 12 tribes of Israel, Judah, which is where David came from, and Benjamin. The rest of the tribes of Israel broke away and set Jeroboam, one of Solomon's servants, as their king. Thus, the house of Israel was fractured in two, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah, and Judah was led by the house of David. Over time, the northern kingdom would be taken captive and sent into exile because of their idolatrous sins, and their sins accelerated much more quickly than Judah. Judah lasted for four Centuries, 400 years of kingdom reign under David's line, then southern kingdom Judah was also exiled for their godless idolatry. Like Adam and Eve had been sent out of the garden, the people of Israel were being sent out of the land. The temple was destroyed. God's people were cast out of his presence once more. The serpent hadn't been crushed yet. In this time of exile, God spoke through the prophets, explaining that his promise to David was not void, but that there would be a restoration of the people of God, both from Israel and Judah, and that there would yet again be a king sitting on the throne from the tribe of Judah and the house of David, and this king would not be like the other kings who had come before. This king would reign in righteousness, bringing in unprecedented peace and prosperity for God's people. This king was the king first foreshadowed in this promise to David. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Not the immediate implications for David and the people of Israel at that time, 
but the promised king. The mountain range that was a little further back. The king Israel came to long for over time, especially as they experienced exile and the consequences of their sin. I don't have main points this morning, but rather many smaller points making up a profile of this promised one that we see here in what's called the Davidic Covenant. All pointing to this truth, God would one day send a righteous king to forever bring peace to his people and glory to his name. And so, this is what we see about this coming king. First, the king will be a servant. David wanted to build a house for God. God, in verse 11, says, No, David, I will make for you a house. Not an earthly home, but a glorious heritage. God is ever the one in control. And one of the reasons that David was called a man after God's own heart was that he ruled God's people as one under God's command. He was not greater than God. Many of the rulers in the ancient world saw themselves as gods. This is not how the king of Israel was supposed to behave. In verse 4, God says to Nathan, go tell my servant David. He doesn't say go tell the king He's reminding Nathan and David who's in charge. Go tell my servant. Any godly king that would rule over and reign over God's people would know this and would exemplify it. Servanthood. This is very countercultural. In just about any culture, in any place, at any time. In our sin, we put ourselves on top. That's why the world is full of wicked rulers. We seek to make a name for ourselves, and those in power lord their power over others, not for the good of the people or for the glory of God, but for the benefit of the king himself. And this is what we see play out over and over again in the record of the kings of Israel and Judah. Read Chronicles, read Kings, and you see over and over again wicked kings come to the throne and do harm to the people of God. Men walking in their own wisdom and harming those that they were meant to help. This would not be the case for the king to come. Chronicles and Kings Those records, read them, they're there to stir our hearts, longing for a king who wouldn't mess up like these men had messed up. This king would be a servant as David had been. He would walk in the paths prepared for him by God. He would be humble. We read of the humility of this coming king in later prophecies. In the book of Isaiah which we'll read from next week, we hear much about the coming servant of the Lord, the coming king who would be struck for the sins of the people, one who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This coming king wouldn't display his power according to the world's standards, but would display his power through humble, God-fearing, loving care of God's people. This king would be different than the kings that we're used to. Second, this king will be great. In verse 9, God promises to make the name of David great. 
He made the same promise to Abraham. He said he will bless him and make his name great. Now, this promise is not working against the glory of God. This isn't the earthly exaltation we just spoke out about. This is about God magnifying his power by upholding and preserving the godly messenger that he intends to send. What will be great about the name of David isn't some self-boosting ego trip. What will be great about David and the king to come who will sit on his throne is that he will be known far and wide. There will be a blessedness and glory that rests on him and the people of God that the world won't be able to deny. We get a taste of this in Solomon's reign. The queen of Sheba hearing about the great prosperity and the happiness of the people of Israel. She comes to see for herself what is going on. This is the great name that God will establish through this coming king. He won't just be a ruler of a small handful of people in some obscure corner of the globe that nobody knows about. His reign and his rule will be great. As the prophecies continue to unfurl, we see that not just Israel, but all the nations will be drawn to him. And to him, all the other rulers on the earth will bow. This humble king will reign supreme over all the others. Nowhere in the Old Testament do we get a loftier picture of this great king than the prophecies and visions of Daniel, who wrote during the time of exile. Daniel writes, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The greatness of this coming king will be unmatched. The glorious God-man that was to come He was coming from the line of David. God indeed would make the name of David great, but not because David was great, but David's name would be great because of the greater one that was to come. Third, the king will bring peace. After God finished his six days of creation, we read, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. The theme of rest is prominent throughout the Old and New Testaments. The Sabbath associated with rest is obviously prominent as well. We see rest mentioned here in verse 11. As God promises to give his people rest from their enemies. When God originally created the earth, he and his people were intended to be in harmonious rest. His creative work was finished and all was at peace. For his people, though we would have worked, that work, as we said last week, would have been a joy, was done in perfect peace with God and with one another. After sin entered the world, God himself picked up the work of creation, but this time not physical, but in working out his plan of redemption. And the people now had no rest at least not the eternal kind we were intended to have. On this earth, because of sin, we toil hard in our labors. 
We battle hard with our sin and often face enemies and pressures all around us. What we see of the future king is that he will give us rest. Rest from enemies without. And as the scriptures continue to make clear, rest from within as well. From the enemy of our own sin And the enemy of Satan and the forces of evil at war with our spirits. We're going to speak more next week of this rest. Next week's message is the king and the kingdom. Next week we just get to dwell on what it is going to be like living under the reign of this king. But for now we note he will be a prince of peace, as Isaiah says. Under this coming one's reign, God's people would have rest for all of their enemies. So as they longed for this king, they longed for rest. One beloved Christmas song, O Holy Night, says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Rest is coming and the king will bring it. So he'll be a servant, he'll be great, he'll bring peace, and next, the king will rule God's people. This may seem an obvious one, but it needs saying, though we will come to see that all nations will bow before this coming king, he has come to rule in a blessed way over God's people. In the Old Testament, God called out a specific people that he intended to bless and use as his witnesses on this earth. Others could take part, but they had to unite themselves with Israel. The king of Israel was not the benevolent king of all nations. So too with this coming king. Though all peoples are subservient to his rule, the people who will get rest from their enemies, the people who will experience the rich blessings of his reign are the people who will recognize his authority, submit to his care, and give glory to his name. In Psalm 2 we read, Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It then goes on, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This coming king to reign, bringing peace, is bringing peace for God's people. Verse 10 says, And I will appoint a place for my people. God's people will long for this king to come and will honor him as king when he arrives. The coming of this king will not be good news for the enemies of God because this coming comes to destroy them. No, this coming king is only good news for those who through repentance for their sins turn to God. Now we will see there's another mountain range and some of this even further back. So the king comes once and there's an extension of grace offered. But there is a further arrival of the king where it will just be judgment and recompense. Fifth, 
The king will be of David. We've already said this, so we won't linger long, but the expectation is obvious in this passage and is clearly spread throughout all the Old and New Testaments. This serpent-crushing king to come would come from the house of Judah and the lineage of David. I believe this serves dual purposes. David stands as an example of the king who was to come, though he was imperfectly serving as an example, a godly king. And it gave the people of God criteria for knowing when the king had arrived. The king will be of the line of David. Six, the king will establish God's house. In the immediate, we said of verse 13 that Solomon would in fact build a house for God's name, an actual physical temple. This prophecy goes beyond Solomon. This coming king would in fact build a house for God. But this word here can, can mean physical dwelling or heritage or, or name and renown. This coming king will do all of these things for God. We begin to see in the Old Testament prophecies that this coming king, the Lord's anointed, would restore the temple. And this coming king would establish God's kingdom and solidify God's glorious presence with his people. The king of God's people is, again, not meant to glorify himself, but glorify God. The rest of chapter 7 here in 2 Samuel is a prayer of David asking that God would do all that he had said so that the name of God would be made great. This is what the king will do. And as the line progresses, as we see the fulfillment of this king, there is a new, truer, and better temple that this king is going to bring. And this king would, in fact, eternally establish God's dwelling place with man. These words to David were much bigger than David could have ever imagined. The king to come was going to give us access to God and establish his dwelling place with us eternally forever. Seventh, the king will reign forever. The people of Israel surely worried and wondered about the fulfillment of this prophecy. The kingdom was quickly divided, and after several centuries of existence, the nation of Israel was conquered and exiled and scattered abroad. This eternal reign would have seemed to them to have been squashed. Yet as we know, this promise was made by the Lord. The Lord who had promised to spare Noah, and he did. God who promised to multiply Abraham and make a nation of his family, and he did. The God who promised that Jacob's bones would be returned from Egypt, and they were. The God who promised to deliver his people from Egypt and give them a land, which he did. This God is not slow to keep his promises, nor is he unable. And so when God says in verse 13 and verse 16 that he would establish his kingdom and his throne forever, he meant it. We read, we read earlier from Daniel about the coming God-man who would reign and rule over an eternal kingdom. Daniel had this vision in the midst of what would only have felt like a failure of this prophecy to come true. There was no king on the throne. Israel was in exile. Where the people would ask is the eternal glory that had been promised them. Yet hope remained. And the prophets continued to speak of a king who was coming. Don't give up, God's saying. Cling to my promises. 
And this king would once for all unite God's people and establish God's kingdom. And once he had done so, God would give an eternal rest to his people forever. So this coming servant, this king, he'll be a servant He will be great. He will bring peace. He will rule God's people. He will be of David. He will establish God's house. He will reign forever. And now finally, the last thing we're going to point out, he will be a son of God. The implications of verse 14 are many. Some, as we said, immediate, but also some far off and likely not even recognized by David and those who first heard this prophecy. God declares of this coming king, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This means God would care lovingly for this coming king and all that he would do, he would do for the benefit and for his good. It also means that the king would love God as father. Just as the father has affection for the son, so the son has affection for the father. There would be a loving relationship between God and this king and a hand of protection and care from the father above of his rule and his reign. And this language, though it could be said of anyone that God adopts into his family, Israel's referred to as God's child. We know we've come to be God's children through adoption. It's clear, especially as the redemptive story unfolds, that this phrase has even deeper meaning. We will come to see that this son of God is son in a way that no one else ever is or ever will be. He would be a man who relates to God in a way no one else ever could. But I'm going to stop there. (laughs) Another cliffhanger. David was left with high expectations. Solomon began with the same, but the kingdom quickly devolved into sin. David was not the promised one. We read in Acts 2.29, David both died and was buried. The promised one certainly wasn't Solomon whose sins split the kingdom in two. The curse remained, the kingdom languished, and the people waited. They waited for a fulfillment of the promise. If you were not with us last week, as I've said, you've, you've dropped into week two of a four-week Advent series. We're taking time to feel the need and the expectation for this coming Christ. Walking through The promises of his arrival. It's hard for me not to preach in full gusto the fulfillment of all of these promises. But that's why I'm looking forward to Christmas Eve morning. So join us because you'll get to hear it. Where we will proclaim and proclaim loudly that the promised one has arrived and the curse has been destroyed. If you're here and you're particularly affected by this discussion of a good king, you feel the brokenness of the world. You look at the rulers over us in this world and you wonder, is there any hope? I assure you that there is. We spoke last week of the great curse of sin that we languish under. But we celebrate Christmas together remembering that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to break the curse through his death and resurrection. Myself or any others you've seen up front here today, would be happy to talk to you further about what Christ has done. And I encourage you to stick with us over the next few weeks to hear more about him and his coming church. 
Though we aren't explicitly today unfolding the fulfillment of all of these promises, remember this, they have been fulfilled. God has kept his promises to us. Let that comfort you this Christmas season, whatever fine ways you find yourself waiting on the Lord, whether you long for his return or you're struggling, you can trust him. There was a curse, there was a promise, and there was a promised king. And next week, we're going to dive into just what the kingdom is like that this king would bring. And another spoiler alert, his kingdom's good. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your precious promises. Thank you that you have shown us time and time again that your word is true and sure and we can anchor our lives upon it. I pray that all of us would have our hopes set upon this good king who came and who will come again. Father, thank you for your loving care for us. Thank you that you've called us sons and daughters. Lord, I pray for all of us that our hearts would be strengthened as we reflect upon your faithfulness to keep your promises. Help us to wait upon you well. Help us to cling to you well when things seem dark or distant or uncertain. Help us to cling to your promises and know that they are sure. We pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Nick Kidwell given at Valley Creek Church. For more information on the church and other messages, please visit us online at www.valleycreek.church.